on the 23rd of February at the uh, Portfolio Construction Market Summit, uh, I spoke to you all uh, that I believe that the days of abnormal monetary policy uh, are over. It, it's extraordinary uh, how much has happened since that uh, conference. Of course, the very, very next day, we saw Russia invade uh, Ukraine. And my word, didn't that uh, send shockwaves uh, around the world? But in essence, the message to you uh, in February was that central banks around the world were very, very much behind the curve. Uh, they'd been taken by surprise uh, by the rise in inflation. Uh, they had described it uh, previously as being transitory. And clearly, uh, the evidence was overwhelming uh, that the rate of inflation was going to far exceed the expectations of either the US central bank or the ECB, or indeed the great majority of economists and fund managers. So here we are near the end of May. Uh, what's changed? Well, first and foremost, clearly, inflationary pressures have been uh, further worsened by the invasion uh, of Ukraine. Indeed, that invasion has further amplified uh, the extraordinary inflationary pressures that is evident right around the globe. I remember in February, uh, I put up a chart which I entitled Achtung, Achtung, uh, which of course was the German producer prices on a year-on-year -year basis. I'm sure none of you remember uh, what that number was. I think it was around 23% uh, or so. Well, today, German producer prices are rising 33.5%. I wish I'd actually shared with you Spanish producer prices. And I could have said the pain in Spain falls mainly upon the producer prices plane. But in Spain today, and I'm checking my notes furiously, Spanish producer prices are now rising at an astonishing 46.6% annual rate. Now, you may ask the question, when did we, have we ever seen those numbers before? Well, in the case of Spain, the, the previous record high was in 1977. So the bottom line is we are experiencing truly stunning levels of inflation particularly in the food and energy complex. And in fact, since uh, our get together uh, in February this year, uh, we need to acknowledge that there's a number of fundamental uh, new realities that we have to face. First and foremost, and I've written about this now for some months, even prior, in fact, to the invasion of Ukraine, is that we now are witness to what I've described as an axis of autocracy uh, with Russia and China at its core. Lest we forget, on February the 4th this year, the Chinese President Xi Jinping and the Russian President Vladimir Putin met in China, issued a declaration, and basically in that declaration said that their friendship has no limits. Now, you can decide what that actually means. The bottom line for me is that Russia and China are now at the core of what I describe as the axis of autocracy. And that is a fundamental change and represents a fundamental rupture of the kind of post-war global geopolitical order. And as I've said, the invasion of Ukraine has further inflamed and amplified uh, this new inflationary reality. 
Now, how do central banks uh, respond to that? Well, we've seen it already. The US central bank has now raised interest rates twice. And also let's give some credit to the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, who uh, kicked off their tightening program well in advance of their counterparts uh, around the world. So all credit to the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. And I could throw in the Czech National Bank that saw the inflationary writing on the wall well before uh, so many of their counterparts around the world. So here we are, and the central banks, having left it way too late, in my personal view, having not acknowledged uh, the seismic uh, rise in inflation around the world, are now having to respond to it. Why? Because, of course, they need to restore their inflation-fighting credentials. And in the pursuit of winning back their credibility, now this is the point that I really want to get across to you today, in the pursuit of winning back their credibility, having kept interest rates too low for too long, the risk, in my view, is they now keep interest rates too high for too long. Because, of course, we are now entering, in my view, a stagflationary period. That is a macroeconomic condition where we see a significant slowing in the economy, if not recession, accompanied by high inflation and persistently higher than many probably still anticipate. So what does a central bank do? Clearly, as the economy is slowing, they would traditionally obviously lower interest rates, be more accommodative. However, with inflation being as high as it is and having told us that they're going to do whatever it takes to get inflation back down to their targeted rate, in the case of the United States, 2%, then clearly they're caught in a jam. In fact, I've described it now for many, many months. They're in a pickle, a jolly, jolly, jolly large pickle. However, Jerome Powell has told us in no uncertain terms, and he's invoked the name of Paul Volcker, that very, very famous, legendary, inflationary fighting US central bank uh, governor uh, from the early 80s, uh, that they're going to do everything they can to bring inflation back down to their targeted rate. So if we take them at their word, they're going to pursue a very restrictive monetary policy stance. And if we can use uh, economic jargon, uh, and Jerome Powell told us, in fact, just last week, in an incredibly interesting interview with the Wall Street Journal, uh, that in fact, he's prepared to go well beyond neutral, if that's what it takes to bring inflation down. However, we now see evidence, overwhelming evidence, that the global economy is slowing sharply. We have China, pursuing an extraordinary zero COVID strategy. We saw retail sales last month in China plunging. And in fact, in Shanghai, we saw the Shanghai Automobile Association make an extraordinary declaration that in the month of April, there were about zero cars sold. I love that word about. I'm not quite sure how you can have about zero. Maybe they sold one third of a car. But the bottom line is there were no car sales in Shanghai in China in the month of April. If that doesn't tell you the extraordinary consequences of a zero COVID strategy, then nothing will. What about Europe? Well, 
I spoke earlier about producer price inflation in Germany and in Spain. European companies are being buffeted by an explosive rise in their input costs, in all of their input costs. It's not just energy, it's everything. Transportation, packaging, all of it, basic material prices, all of them rising. At the same time, we're seeing a plunge in consumer confidence across Europe. Take the United Kingdom, where we actually have stagflation being predicted by the Bank of England. What about Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England governor, who just last week used extraordinary language when he described the food catastrophe around the world as being apocalyptic? When was the last time you heard a central bank governor use language such as apocalyptic? What about the very latest Economist, which on its front cover had the most alarming and startling and terrifying illustration of the famine and the food catastrophe that the world now faces? This is the reality. And now we might all sit here and we start looking at all our economic data points and most of our time is spent on the developed world. And I wanna make this point very, very clearly, not just because I was born in Africa and I've lived in six countries. I take a passionate interest in Africa, in the emerging markets. The bottom line is the majority of humanity today is facing a food and energy crisis, the likes of which we have never seen before. That is why the Bank of England governor, Andrew Bailey, use the word apocalyptic, because he's looking at that data as well. Now, we're all very comfortable in most of our nations that are watching this today in the advanced developed world. But at the end of the day, in Sudan, in Ethiopia, in Egypt, in Tunisia, and highly populated countries around the world, food prices have more than doubled. And clearly what's happened in terms of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a humanitarian catastrophe for the citizens of Ukraine. And all of us must remember that. But it is also a catastrophe for the majority of humanity because that war is going to or is creating food famines and a catastrophe across many, many hundreds of millions, if not billions of people uh, around the world. So what do central banks do? in an environment such as this. This is an incredibly challenging macroeconomic menu uh, of all kinds of nasty things. So at the end of the day, the US Central Bank has a mandate. We know what that mandate is. They're gonna pursue that mandate. They're going to try and bring inflation down. Eventually they will be right, but the price they will pay is most likely that they will push the United States into a recession. And that is rather sad, because I do still believe there was an opportunity more than 12 months ago for central banks around the world to start pulling back some of the extraordinary monetary stimulus that we saw injected into financial markets and the economies in 2020. But that's where we are today. As the saying goes, it is what it is. For investors, this is really challenging. We have a rupture of the inflationary landscape. We have a seismic shift in terms of monetary policy and the pursuit and implementation of monetary policy accompanied by 
a very significant shift in the new geopolitical reality. The rise of this axis of autocracy, and by the way, there are a few willing members, which I won't mention on our, in our discussion today, but there's quite a few nations that you know would love to be part of that axis of autocracy. And this new division, this new dislocation between what could best be described as the democracies and the autocracies is the defining geopolitical phenomenon of our time. And I don't need to throw Taiwan into this conversation today, because you all know that that is an issue that is going to be dealt with possibly in the relatively near future. So what do we do? What do we do in terms of portfolio construction? Well, first and foremost, we look at history and we consider how did various asset classes perform during periods of stagflation? And the news is not good. Equity markets don't perform in terms of stagflation. And in fact, we saw a reminder of that just last week. We saw two giants of the retail world in the United States, both Walmart and Target, tell us there was a surge in their costs. Transportation uh, costs went through the roof, wages are rising, and as a consequence, they had to downgrade their expectations on their profit margin uh, forecast. It was a timely reminder that two companies that have a, a great track record of managing inventory, managing their costs, uh, were caught flat-footed uh, by the events of the last uh, several months. So that talks to the issue that earnings in the United States have to be downgraded. Uh, and I think we're going to see significant earnings downgrades uh, in the United States. Um, at the same time, of course, we've got this pressure on the fixed income markets. Now, for those of you uh, who are bored senseless and uh, 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 have the misfortune of subscribing to my reports, uh, will know uh, that in the last month or so, I've actually started saying that some allocation to fixed income uh, is appropriate in this environment. Why? Because central banks are going to go too far on tightening monetary policy and the world has a lot of debt. And the transmission mechanism is going to be via housing here in Australia. Our housing market has been red hot. I said in my latest report that I have a high degree of conviction, 100% conviction that house prices in Australia are going to fall over the next three years. So in the United States, I think we're at a peak as well. So in fact, some exposure to the fixed income markets, and this is the first time I've said this in 18 months or so, is now appropriate. And then you can start thinking of other asset classes, such as commodities, obviously, and also gold, which generally perform well in these types of environments. I'm very glad I no longer manage money uh, I, I, it's incredibly challenging. This is really challenging. But one thing we must do is, is actually just accept there's a new reality. There's a new monetary policy reality. There's a new inflationary reality. And there's certainly, certainly a new geopolitical reality.